We're going to finish Mark 11 tonight. Turn to Mark chapter 11. And actually, we're going to start reading verses 12 to 14 and then read verses 20 to 25. Mark 11, beginning in verse 12, and it says there, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And then if you would turn over to verse 20, and it says, In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God, for verily or truly I say unto you that Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and ye shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Amen. So let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you will open our hearts and you will speak to us once again, that your word will resonate with our hearts and the truths of your word, and you'll help us to walk in them by the power of your Holy Spirit that we have in us. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked about last time that the fig tree in Mark 11 represents the nation of Israel, and in particular, he's talking right now to the city of Jerusalem. So as he's approaching Jerusalem in what the Bible calls, or actually the Bible, it's your little headings in your Bible, the triumphant entry, it says that when he approaches there, he looks over that city. He's kind of coming down from a higher elevation, and as it says, as he sees the city, beheld the city, it says he wept over it. So You know, that gives you what image where he's seeing Jerusalem and seeing the state it's in and he weeps over it. It kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul. You know, he had a heart for God's people, the Jews, even though he knew most of them were going to perish. And Jesus knew most of them were going to perish that he's seeing here in that city, but it didn't keep him from weeping. And Paul wrote in Romans 9, he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. He said, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. And so even though Jesus pronounces a curse on Jerusalem and in essence the nation of Israel, they are not cast off. I mean, we went through a whole four message series of that (laughs) a while back. They are not cast off and they are still going to be saved as a nation. All of Israel is going to be saved one day. And they're going to realize, they're going to look, they're going to see him when he comes back in his glory on that same Mount of Olives that he's descending on weeping now. They're going to see him and then his grace, it says, will be poured on out on them. Grace and supplication and they will mourn for him whom they have pierced. But that'll be a blessed day, won't it, for them? Israel saved, I mean, God's people, the whole nation being saved after they're purged, a big deal. So he's approaching Jerusalem. He pronounces a curse even though he's weeping. He's saying, you didn't know your king had come. I had come here. You didn't know the time of your visitation. If only you would have known that. 
So they rejected him. They went on and killed him. And as a result, their city was laid to waste, wasn't it? Jesus said this as part of the curse he pronounced. He says, they shall not leave in thee in Jerusalem one stone upon another. So Jerusalem and Israel is set aside. Why were they set aside? The fig tree is symbolic, isn't it, of the nation. So they had leaves, but they didn't have fruit. They lacked the one essential thing. And what caused that lack of fruit? What was it that caused the lack of fruit? Unbelief. Isn't it? Israel's cut off for their lack of trust and obedience to the word of God. And now, what's he going to do after this with his people? He's going to start a new thing with the Gentiles. And how is he going to do that? Through their faith. And that's what we'll be talking about today. They will bear fruit. And I want us to just see this briefly. This is like the big picture of what's going on here. If you turn over to Romans 11, put something there and Mark will be right back there. But look over in Romans 11 and look what it says. Romans 11, beginning in verse 19, it says this. It says, and thou wilt say the branches were broken off. That's Israel that I might be grafted in. That's what a Gentile would say. And Paul writes to the Romans, he says, well, because of unbelief. They were broken off. That's why they were cursed. And he says, but you stand how? How do the Gentiles, how do we stand today? By faith. And he says, but be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, he says, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. He says, behold, look, therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but towards thee goodness, if... You continue in his goodness. Otherwise, he said, you shall also be cut off. So the only way we stand and have a place in the vine, which is God's people, is through our faith. That's what it says there in verse 20. And he says, don't take that for granted, but you should fear. So we need to continue in God's goodness. So how do we continue in his goodness that we don't get cut off? Well, look over in chapter 12. Because Paul is saying, all of what you've seen happen to Israel that they were cut off because of their unbelief, and you need to fear. He says, therefore, I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, because of what all he said in chapter 11, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And verse 3, he says, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. Why? Look at the end of verse 3. According as God has dealt to every man what? He says he's dealt to every man the measure of faith. He begs the Roman Christians by the mercies of God that he's shown them, the mercy he's shown them to present their bodies. He's saying their whole lives, everything about them, present that as a living sacrifice. Don't live like the world, he says. Have your mind and outlook has got to be completely changed from the world's mind and outlet. And when you do that, he says, you will demonstrate what the perfect will of God says. And that's why he's saying, but don't think you're something special. If God tends to use you, that's what he's saying there in verse 3. But realize that God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. He's dealt means he's assigned, he's bestowed, he's allocated a measure of faith to every Christian. 
Every Christian has faith, or you're not a Christian. So everybody has got faith. There's no one in here that can say they're a Christian and then say, I have no faith. I have no ability to trust the Lord. Everybody does. And what does it take to do the impossible? A mustard seed. And you've got that much. You've got the measure. So we can't say, nobody in here, we can't say we're the exception. Others have faith. I don't have faith. I just can't trust the Lord. Can we say that? Not according to what the Bible says. So there's a level, wherever you're at, people are at different levels. We've been taught that in the past, and it's true. So there's, But there is a level you are expected to trust God. And so look down in verse 6 of chapter 12 of Romans. Look what it says. He says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy how? According to the proportion of faith. So say you're somebody in here. Does that mean you have to wait for five years to get your faith up to exercise a gift? No, I mean, there's a lot of people in here got saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. They were stepping out in gifts years back, like within a short period of time. So you're saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit impresses on you. You've been praying before you come to church. You're sold out, and that could very well happen. You don't have to be in this a long time. You'd be a teenager, and it happened. And God's impressing on you. He gives you something to say. He gives you a few words, and you're just a little bit shy, backward man on me. I don't know. And you step out. That's where your faith is at. You just say those few words. And hey, it blesses everybody that's here. Because God takes those few words and makes something out of it. And then when that's confirmed to you that that was the Lord, which he does, usually he'll do that to a new Christian that steps out like that, a new baptized Christian. Then you'll be encouraged to step out the next time. And it'll, you'll grow in that gift. You'll grow in your faith. But we're not excused from exercising no faith, are we? That's the point I'm trying to make here. We all have a measure of faith. That's what he says. And we're all expected to use it as a member of the body. And so when we trust in God, we're the Gentiles. When we exercise that faith and trust in God, what will be the result? When you trust and obey, which Israel didn't do, they were cut off because of their unbelief. But when you trust and obey God, you will bear fruit. And what will that do when you bear fruit? Because you're trusting and obeying the word of God. It will glorify him. So if you would, turn over from Romans over to 1 Peter 2. I want us to see that. Like I said, this is kind of getting the bigger picture, and we're going to zero in on the smaller picture here right after this. But look in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look what he says. And he talks here about the they were cut off because of their unbelief. They rejected Jesus, but yet God had mercy on us. And then here's what happens. Look at this. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 5, he says, You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. You're a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. It says, He that believes on him will never be confounded. If you're trusting the Lord for something that's in his word, that's his promise, isn't it? He will never make a fool out of you for trusting him. Amen? That's a promise right there. Look in verse 7. He says, Unto you, therefore, that's us which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the Jews, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. It became, Jesus became what, verse 8? A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also 
they were appointed. But look what he says about us here in verse 9. He says, but you, you here, the people I'm talking to now, all of us, you are a chosen elect race, God's people, God's race, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That doesn't mean weird. It means a people of God's own possession. There's something different about a Christian with faith. That's what he's saying. This is his fruit that you should show forth. Proclaim through your life because of what he's done. The praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You'll proclaim his excellencies, his glory. Your faith will bring fruit and glorify God. That's what this verse is saying. A special people we are. Verse 10, which in time past were not a people but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but praise God, now we have obtained mercy. Amen? Hey, that is a blessing. So if you would go back to Mark chapter 11. So that's the big picture of what's happened here. Curse that fig tree. But that's not the end of it. He's saying, no, there is going to be people that will have faith in God. I'm raising up a new race of people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's peculiar people. That's us. So look what he says here in Mark 11. We're going to look at three points here tonight, beginning in verse 22. Three points. I'm becoming a three-point man here lately. I don't know how that's happening. It's just the way it's working out. But the first thing we want to look at is, we're going to look at, is that God expects us to trust him. The second thing we're going to look at is we must deal with doubt. And the third thing is sin will hinder your faith. So the first thing we see in verse 22 is God expects us to trust him. Look what it says. Mark eleven twenty-two, and Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. So there's a debate that goes on and you'll read different books. There's a debate that goes on amongst people how that verse should be translated, whether it should be translated, have faith in God or have God's faith. And I don't want to get into all the Greek that allows that debate to go on. Okay. So I'd say, technically, it could be translated either way. Okay, that's why the debate exists. But every major translation you'll look at translates the verse, have faith in God. And I believe that's the proper translation of that. But either way you want to go, here's the point I want to make. What is not debated is that have faith in God, have the faith of God is in the imperative mood. You're like, what's that? Is that like a bad mood? No, it's not like a bad mood. The imperative mood means when a verb is in the imperative in the Greek, it means simply it's a command. So it's a command he's given here. It's not an option. Have faith in God is a command. And who is the one who speaks these words? Who's the one that's given the command? The sovereign king who in this chapter came riding in on a donkey, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he our sovereign king and Lord? And he says, have faith in God. Commands us to have faith in God, to trust in him. Trust him for what? That our sins are forgiven just for that? That we're going to be raptured one day? That God exists? I mean, it says the devils believe that and tremble, but they're still devils. And he's saying we should trust him not only for those things, but the Bible from Old to New Testament, from cover to cover, exhorts us to trust in God and him alone. That's created a controversy that I've said that, in him alone for everything. But that's what it teaches. 
Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, we sing this song. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. That's Old Testament. We could have gone back further than that, but I'd pick that out of Proverbs 3. And what about Philippians 4? Philippians 4, 6 says this, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, or in every situation, be anxious for nothing, but in every situation, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, here's how you should deal with every situation you get in. Not to worry about it, what does he say to do? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Let your request be made known to God. That's pretty easy to understand. And then he says, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, he'll keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So let me ask you something. That's just two verses. We could have given a lot more, couldn't we, about the Bible saying he wants you to trust him. Let me ask you, should we as a church or as an individual, however you want to look at it, should we feel like we are doing something wrong or extreme just because we want to obey what the Lord Jesus Christ and God in his word tells us to do? Are we supposed to feel odd about that as Christians, that we're just simply obeying what the Bible says? Should? What do you do? I'm trusting the Lord. Really? Yeah, that's what he tells me to do. That's how I've decided to live my life. And God is faithful. I can do that. And I'll tell you, I think, honestly, the fact he commands us to do that should be an encouragement. Because you're trusting him, you can just say, Lord, you commanded me to do this. You commanded me to trust you, and I just want to obey you. That's all I want to do. I just want to please you by trusting you. Amen? Amen. And exercising trust in God is the only way to please him. Without faith, Hebrews eleven six. without faith, without trust, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. Believe what that he is? Everything he tells you in the Bible. I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord your righteousness. I am the Lord your banner. On and on and on. I am your peace. I am your everything. He is my all. We can start singing. Maybe now we could get everybody singing. <laughs> That's what he is. And he is a rewarder have to believe that he is. He is what he says he is, what he's presented in the Bible. Otherwise, we would have no idea. We'd be like all these pagans out there. They have no idea who God is. They make him out to be a big superhuman, just a bigger version of themselves. But no, we know from the Bible exactly who he is, what he will do for us, don't we? Amen. And he says he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So if you read Psalm 78, which we're not going to read Psalm 78, but I would suggest you do. It's a great psalm, and it can seem hard. But if you read it, you will see that God was angry with Israel for not trusting him to provide bread and meat in the wilderness. Temporal things, as they say, not spiritual things. He's upset with them and angry for not providing temporal provisions. And here's what they said. Psalm 78, behold, he smote the rock 
that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. And Israel said this, we saw him do that. But can he give bread also? And can he provide flesh for his people? They said, well, he provided us water, but can we trust him? He did that, but can we trust him for bread? He provided water, but can we trust him for meat? Does he really care that much for us? Isn't that really what they're asking? And it says in Psalm 78, if you read it, that God was offended with that. Because it says next, therefore, the Lord heard this. He heard them say, can God, can he, will he? The Lord heard this and was wroth, or wroth, I guess depends on where you live in the U.S. And it says, so a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel. Why? Because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Now, am I being hard in saying that? I just told you what it said. Because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. And what do we read in verse 22? What did Jesus say? Have faith in God. What are we warned about in Hebrews chapter 3? Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Amen? This is why I got a couple quotes in here from George Mueller because I thought it probably would be better received coming from him than me. And George Mueller, all of you know, he was a man of faith, great faith. But he also says, you read it, he says, I didn't have the gift of faith. That's not how all this exercised. He said, I just had the same faith that every believer has. That's all I did. I just used it. And God blessed me as a result. But listen to what he says, George Mueller. So our point is, God expects us to trust him. Here's what George Mueller said. So he says, though every believer is not called upon to establish orphan houses, which is what he did, Millions of dollars came through his hands. He said, yet, so everyone's not like me. He says, yet all believers are called upon in the simple confidence of faith to cast all their burdens upon him, to trust him for everything, and not only to make everything a subject of prayer. Listen to what George Mueller says, to trust him for everything, not to just make everything a subject for prayer, but to expect answers to their petitions, which they have asked according to his will. That's critical. Have to ask according to his will. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many people don't pray in the name of Jesus? But that's what Jesus said, to pray in the name of Jesus. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says this, and this is the confidence, the expectation, the assurance that we have in him that if we ask anything, According to his will. Anything, that's all you need to know. Is it according to his will? What he's willing to do. What he wants to do. Anything according to his will. It says if you ask that, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, then we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Past tense is put in the past tense, isn't it? Just like what we were looking at with Joshua. See, I have given that city into your hands before they'd done anything. It was still saying it just as big as it ever was. But he says, I have already given that to you. Now you just obey me and see what happens, but it's done. Those walls are flat, even though they're looking at them standing straight up. Isn't that what it's all about? Haven't we learned all these? I'm not saying anything we haven't ever heard before. And that's what 1 John 5, 14 and 15. You ask anything according to his will, you need healing, you need whatever. 
And he says, you know you have it when you ask. You have the petitions. We desire them. Don't have to worry about it. He's heard you. And that's what you have to believe. That's what all of us have to believe. Amen. And God is faithful. Jesus says, have faith in God. Trust that he loves you and will provide what you need. And listen, here's what he says. Talk about financial things. He says this in Luke 12. Seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink. He says, neither be you of a doubtful mind, which is the opposite of faith. Don't seek what you drink, like, like Israel out in the wilderness. He says, seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be you of a doubtful mind. He goes on to say, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What a promise. Your father's good pleasure. And I'm saying we need to disabuse our minds, get it out of our thinking that we somehow have to twist God's arm to get him to answer our prayers. When he just got through saying, fear not, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he delights just like any father in here knows you delight to bless your children, don't you? Kids got to twist your arm to give them what they need and what is their right to have? Anybody? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, man, if it's his good pleasure and what he delights to do, I sure wish he'd hurry up because his good pleasure is killing me. Sometimes you feel that way, don't you? So if you would, turn over to Luke 18. And we taught on this a while back, but we'll look at this again. God expects us to trust him. In Luke 18, beginning in verse 1, it says this, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always, it's an obligation, a duty, ought always to pray and don't give up, not to faint, saying there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he wouldn't do it for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man yet, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wears me out. In verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear along with him? He says, verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them. How? Speedily. May not seem like it to us, but it is. Nevertheless, and look what he says here. Have faith in God, but he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, comes back, what is he wondering? Is he going to find any faith on earth? Mm, that's a question, isn't it? Because it says the love of many is going to wax cold when things get bad. And that's the motivation for faith, the love of God, isn't it? Will he find faith on earth? So here, maybe this will help somebody out. I hope it does. I got another quote from Mr. Mueller. I thought this was good. I thought this was helpful. He said, when sometimes all has been dark, exceedingly dark, judging from the natural appearances, yea, when I should have been overwhelmed indeed in grief and despair, had I looked at things after the outward appearances. Now, I didn't have this in here. I'm just throwing this in as a little aside. But he talks about, some people will say, that life of faith you talk about just seems so hard. I don't know if I want to do that. He goes, no, it's just the opposite of that. He'd say, I'd never give it up. And he's talking right here about going through some really dark times. But he said, I wouldn't give it up for anything. 
what I've experienced. So he says, when sometimes all has been dark, exceedingly dark, judging from natural appearances, yea, when I should have been overwhelmed indeed in grief and despair, had I looked at things after the outward appearances. Look what he says, at such times, I have encouraged myself in God by laying hold in faith on his almighty power, his unchangeable love, and his infinite wisdom. And I have said to myself, God is able and willing to deliver me. For it is written, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This, he said, this is what which being delivered by me through grace kept my soul in peace. That's the only thing that kept him going. He would remind himself of that about God's almighty power, his unchangeable love, and his infinite wisdom. And he had all those attributes. He believed that God is and that he was willing and able to deliver him. That he's a rewarder of George Mueller or anyone in here that will diligently seek him which he did. <laughs> so, God commands us to trust him and he'll bless us if we do. Trust in him. Psalm 62, you all remember that? Trust in him at all times. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge for us. Selah, Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times is what the Bible says. So back to Mark 11, and we'll deal with our second point next. And the second point is that we must deal with doubt. And that's in verse 23. Jesus says, Mark 11:23, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he'll have whatsoever he saith, and shall not doubt in his heart. And so doubt is Satan's greatest weapon against our faith. So we pray about a promise of God, found something there God says he'll do for us, and we trust him to do what he says he wants to do. And that is when the warfare begins, doesn't it? That's when it begins, because it's just not a matter of us wondering. I mean, we've got intelligent spirits coming at us, trying to talk us out of what we just claimed, demonic spirits coming at our thoughts so they may use other people they may use books they may use all these ministries people listen to now they listen to just about anything and most of these people will talk you out of your faith they will he just can come in and just talk to you directly those evil spirits can come to us in our thoughts that are opposed to whatever we're trusting God for isn't that the way it works that's the way it works so if God promises to provide all of our needs and we only need to seek the kingdom, and here's all these thoughts start coming in your mind. Maybe somebody tells you you're going to starve. You're going to be sleeping in your car because you don't have a job. You don't have a check, whatever. You're going to be thrown in jail for neglect or you're going to have to be one of these people out there begging or getting loans. That's the only options you have. Who do you think those thoughts come from? Yeah, thank you. It's not from God. He doesn't give you a promise and then turn right around and say, well, it doesn't work. That doesn't work that way. Is that God telling you those things? And how many times will people say, I know the devil's telling me. And it's like they say, well, then why don't you quit listening? <laughs> I know the devil's telling me this isn't going to work, trying to talk me out. Well, then quit listening to him. 
That's easier said than done, believe me. I understand how mind battles work. You know, some people even worry about that they're doubting. Have I doubted? Well, I'm not sure. I think I have. Well, now God's not going to answer me. And, da, 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 and they get all worried that they're doubting. <laughs> I mean, it can go on and on. And he messes with your mind. Who's the only one that can control your mind? You. Only we can control our mind. What enters our mind, what thoughts we're going to entertain, whether we're talking about faith or lust. You don't have to lust. You can dismiss a thought, look the other way, and it's the same with doubt. You don't have to doubt if you choose not to. And you can cry out to God to help you. The true faith and trust in God will ask God to do something based on his word, and then you have to expect the answer to come. And when you begin to entertain doubts that it might not come, you're sunk. You are. You can't do both. You can't hold on to the faithfulness of God and then think, well, what am I going to do if he's not faithful? You can't have it both ways. And that's what James says in James chapter 1, if you turn over to that. James chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. James chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally, and he upbraids not. Doesn't revile you for asking. Doesn't get on your case. And it says, and it shall be given him. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering, or the word is doubting, nothing doubting, wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed for. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. And here's the way to look at this. If you read and stop at verse 5, all is well. All will be well. So the devil comes with his doubts, and you've asked God to do something for you, answer him with verse 5. Tell him, you know, I lacked wisdom. I didn't know what to do, but I asked. Isn't that the first thing it tells you to do there in verse 5? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Well, I did that. And then answer him back that God is generous. God is good. He's not going to get on my case. Isn't that the second thing it says there in verse 5? He gives to all men liberally. He's generous. And he upbraids not. He's not going to get on your case for being such an idiot that you don't know what to do. He's not going to make you feel that way. That's what other people do. But God's not that way. And it's his good pleasure to give me wisdom. That's what I'd tell the devil. And the last thing it says is what? It will be given me. Because God promised. Case closed. I'm saying if you dealt with things that way, it would all work. You got to be like the monkey. You know, see no evil. Cover your ears, so to speak. I'm done listening to anything else. That's where you're back to the old message of faith. You've got to burn bridges if it's true faith. There's no turning back. It's like Israel. What are they going to do? The Jordan River has closed behind them. It's go forward or die. I'm committed to this. They put their lives on the line, didn't they? Everyone's so worried about, I got my life on the line. Well, Israel had their lives on the line. When Jehoshaphat went out to face them, they didn't have their lives on the line. They stood before the Lord, them and their wives and their little kids, and looked down on us, Lord, have mercy. This army's way bigger than us. You think their lives weren't on the line? They were on the line. What about people overseas facing severe persecution? You think their lives aren't on the line? Every day they are on the line. No what-ifs to faith. And we've been taught that in the past, too, and it's still true. If it's faith, there are no what-ifs. 
It's Psalm 112. If you would turn to that, please. Psalm 112, verses 6 to 8. Talking about a righteous man, the upright man, a good man. Psalm 112, beginning in verse 6, it says, Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. Look what it says in verse 7. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. Why? His heart is what? Fixed. Trusting in the Lord. His heart is established, verse 8. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon the enemies. And so it says, a saying, a righteous person, they can hear an evil report, bad news. It doesn't move him because he has determined that no matter what, he is going to trust the Lord. It says his heart is fixed, steadfast, firm, confident, is all what that word could mean. You're not going to talk that person out of trust in the Lord. You're not. Not that man. By the grace of God, his heart is confident that God is not going to let him down. And he's not going to allow doubt to enter in. It's settled. I'm not going to second guess myself. Isn't that what we read in Mark 11, 23? Am I making things up again? Didn't Jesus say that? Say to this man, and not doubt in your heart. And you can have whatever you say. And he goes, therefore, we have the great verse of Mark eleven twenty four. What things soever you desire. It's based on all of what he said back in verse 23. What things soever you desire. When you pray, when you pray, that's when you believe that you have it. Not when you see it. And he says, then you shall have it. That's the way it works. Can't second guess yourself. But only do that. Stop at verse 5 in James 1. Like I said, there'd be no need for verses 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting, for the man that doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed to and fro. You're high, oh man, praise God, it's going to work. And then you go back down and say, I don't think it's going to work. What am I going to do? He's saying that's what a person that doubts is like. Isn't that what he says? And he says, let not that person think that they're going to receive anything from the Lord. Now, does that mean if you had a thought of doubt or you doubted once, it's all over? Abraham, it talks about him being fully persuaded to what God would promise. It talks about him not having doubt, wavered not. But he did waver, didn't he? Oh, that Ishmael may live. So there's still repentance, even in a trial. Just because you doubt once or waver, that's not the end of the equation, is it? Praise the Lord, it's really not. So I'd say the best way, though, to overcome doubt is to have a close walk with the Lord, to meditate on his word. All the stories of God's faithfulness, knowing that what he's done for others, he will do for you. Why? Because it's his nature. So if you would turn to Luke 13. Turn into a few verses tonight, but turn to Luke 13. We'll begin there in verse 10 familiar story, but we'll read it. Luke 13, 10, and it says, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, long time. She's bowed together, and she could in no wise, this is what this spirit did to her, no wise lift herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, woman, you are loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. The ruler of the synagogue didn't like that. He answered with indignation. 
because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work, in them therefore come and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? Verse 16, and ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom who has bound? Satan, the source of illness. Lo, these 18 years he's had her bound. Shouldn't she, a daughter of Abraham, a believer, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Verse 16, ought not this woman. Okay, I'm going to give you a quote from Mr. Bevington. It's in his book. Read his book if you haven't. If you want to know how to trust the Lord for healing, for faith, how to pray, how to pray through for promises, read Bevington. I would highly recommend it. Really would be an encouragement to your faith. But here's what Mr. Bevington said about verse 16. We know of no stronger statement of the Lord's willingness Nay, more of the Lord's will to heal his trusting children than this verse. Verse 16 that we just read there. Ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham? He says the word ought expresses much more than willingness. It expresses obligation, right, something which would be wrong not to do. Oh, it places divine healing on a high and solid plane as not only a possible and actual intervention of God for the help of his suffering children, but as his normal provision for believers. It is something, Bevington said, included in our redemption rights, something that is already recognized as within his will and that does not require a special revelation to justify us in claiming it. He's saying, he's telling us right there, it's just like with that leper. The leper came to him, if you be willing, you can make me whole, clean. And Jesus forever disabused the Bible of whether it's God's will to heal. He says, I will be thou clean. And that's what Bevington's saying here. Don't need a special revelation to know if healing is God's will. He's given it to us time and time again. He said, if God expects us to do what we ought to do, and he does, he says, surely... Listen to this. Surely we may expect as much from him. And Jesus says, ought not I loose this daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound? This is what I've come to do. These 18 years, ought not I? He says, it's my obligation to do it. We can look to God. That's an encouragement, isn't it? To trust God for healing. He says, Bevington, there is something startling in the positiveness of what a word, and force of the expression ought not. And surely no child of God should ever doubt again his perfect readiness to help and heal. Amen? That is a great verse. Should we ever doubt his willingness to heal? Psalm 103 says what? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all thine iniquities. Nobody doubts that. Does anybody stay up at night wondering if your sins have been forgiven? Most people don't. But he goes on to say, not only who forgives all thine iniquities, but his benefits are that he heals all thy diseases. Why doubt that? Why question God's integrity when he says that? That's what his word says. Amen? Amen.
All right, so go back to Mark 11 and we'll look at point three, that sin will hinder faith. And that's in verse 25. He says, when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So he adds that immediately after verse 24, doesn't he? He wants to let anybody know that thinks faith is all you have to have. It's all that matters to God. It's not a life of holiness. He lets them know sin will keep your prayers from being answered, won't it? So if you have unforgiveness of any form in your heart, God will not answer your prayer. If you've got unforgiveness, if you've got resentment, anger, bitterness, any of those things, they're a roadblock to the answer. Coming. You've got to deal with those things. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying here. And I think a lot of people think, well, I prayed and I asked all these other people to pray. You've got sin in your life. That clogs up everything. And God's not obligated then. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's what he says. If I have iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If John G. Lake tells in his book, I guess this would happen many times, but he's saying there'd be a line of people coming through that he's praying for for healing. And most were receiving, but he said there were some that would receive nothing. They're suffering. And they'd just be suffering after he prayed for them. And so he had a room, and he'd tell his people, look, you go in that room over there, and there'd be several of them in that room after they were done praying. And he'd send his wife in there. And his wife had the gift of a word of knowledge, apparently, because he said she'd walk up to him, never seen these people before. And she'd say, well, your difficulty is that you, at such and such a time, you committed this sin, which has not been repented of and confessed. Or walk up to another person, well, you, at this time, you stole this from somebody, and you've never made restitution. Or walk up to somebody else. And she said, the pride of your heart and the love of the world have not been laid at the altar of Christ. And Lake said, some of these people, because their mail was read, the secrets of their heart were revealed. He said they'd bow at once and repent and he'd pray and bam, immediately they're healed. But this is amazing to me. People, though, that would have their mail read like that, he said some would just leave and not repent. Or some would just feign repentance and not be healed. Those were more the exceptions than the rules. But the bottom line is that sin in their life, unrepented of, was keeping that healing from happening. Where's his wife tonight? <laughs> Just kidding. We're talking about sin can hinder faith. What about husband and wife relationships? 1 Peter 3, 7 says this, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, with your wife, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, why does he say that, 1 Peter 3, 7? That your prayers be not hindered. So it's always important for married couples to keep things right between themselves. Don't let arguments and hard feelings linger and left unresolved. Because you never know when one of your children or whatever is going through a major trial. And there you need faith. Or that happens, something happens in your house, upside down in your house, and God convicts you. You and your wife got problems. And that's a humbling thing, isn't it, a lot of times? It's not easy to do a lot of times. You, got, you, know, you feel like you were in the right, they were more in the wrong. And God says, you need to get that straightened out. That your prayers and your faith be not hindered. Husbands need to show honor to their wives. That's what it says in 1 Peter 3, 7. Not treat them like dirt. So that the pipeline into your home of God blessing your home through you and your wife's faith isn't clogged. 
You live in constant turmoil in your house? What could be worse because of that and your faith can't be exercised that you lose your children as a result of that forever? What could be worse? I can't think of anything worse because unforgiveness between a Christian couple. So the principle is faith will work, but we cannot have any known sin in our lives. Here's my last quote from Mr. Mueller. Mr. Mueller said this. I thought this was good. It is of utmost importance, he said, that we seek to maintain an upright heart and a good conscience and therefore do not knowingly and habitually indulge in those things which are contrary to the mind of God. All of my confidence in God, all of my leaning upon him in the hour of trial will be gone if I have a guilty conscience, but still continue to do things which are contrary to his mind. You got known sin, there's somebody that's still hooked on pornography, and you think your faith is going to work, or people's prayers are somehow going to help you, you've got to repent of that and be done with it, cut it off, or whatever the sin is. That's what it says. That's what the Bible says. So what is the Lord telling us here back in Mark 11, beginning in verse 22? He demands, the Lord Jesus Christ demands of all of us as Christians to have faith in God. And he's not doing it, is he, just to make us miserable. It's just the opposite of that because that is the way we're designed to live. We're designed to live trusting God, communing God, hearing his voice, obeying what he tells us to do, obeying his word, trusting him to provide everything we need. That's how God has designed us to live, and that's the happiest life we'll ever have. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to go through fiery trials. All of us have that have trusted the Lord. I mean fiery trials. But the thing is, in the end, those of us that have been through fiery trials and seen God's faithfulness, man, is there ever a time when there is more joy and thanksgiving manifested than when you get to the end of that? And that's the purpose. He wants to build endurance in our faith, but he also says he wants our joy to be full. And that's how it happens, because you experience God in a way you can't any other way when you trust him and go through a fiery trial. You do. John 16, he says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, he told his disciples, you've asked nothing in my name. But he says, after I leave, ask, and you will receive. Why? that your joy may be full. He's not trying to kill us. He wants our joy to be full. And that happens through trusting him. But we've got to deal with our doubts, right? But doing that, we just have to remember that God wants to bless us. We're not twisting his arm, as I said earlier. He's the one that made the promises. He's the one that has pledged his honor, his integrity, his power, and his faithfulness to us. We just have to get our hearts fixed. Fixed on what? On his love for us and on his word. Because that's what the devil has twisted from the beginning to cause people to doubt. Way back in the garden, he's getting them to doubt both of those things. Yea, hath God said, he's attacking his word, attacking what his word says. And then he goes on, well, he didn't mean what he said. He doesn't really have concern for you. He's keeping you from something that's good for you, this tree he won't let you eat. He's questioning God's love and goodness. Isn't that what he's doing? Those are the two things he attacks. And that's what he attacks when we try to exercise faith. Those are the two things he's after. Attacking God's love for us and his word, his integrity. 
So we've got to be fixed on those, unbendingly fixed, that God loves us and that he is faithful and honest, an honest being. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? He will. I want to end with this hymn, Jesus Never Fails. Earthly friends may prove untrue. Doubts and fear assail. One still loves and cares for you. One who will not fail. Jesus never fails, the chorus says. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Though the sky be dark and drear, fierce and strong the gale, just remember he is near and he will not fail. Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. In life's dark and bitter hour, love will still prevail. Trust his everlasting power, for Jesus will not fail. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll stop there. And Lord, we just thank you that it's a command, Lord, but it's also a promise of your faithfulness that we should have faith in God, have faith in you. And if we'll just trust you, Lord, and commit our hearts, have our hearts fixed towards you, not doubt that we'll have whatever we say, Lord, because you are faithful, because of your power, your love, your faithfulness to us, we can trust in that. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'll deal with all of us, that we can have pure and upright hearts before you that when we pray we can know and have confidence that our conscience is clear and that we can know as you say in first john 3 we can receive those things that you've promised us in your word amen i just thank you lord that you are the true and living god and you've spoken to us tonight and i just thank you for doing that in jesus name amen